Recovery Elevator, episode 373. And it was a conscious choice that I made because there was this fear that if I started, I wouldn't be able to stop. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we have Chris. She's 46 years old from Baltimore and took her last drink on August 28th, 2016. Before we get any further, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking, such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Listeners, do you want to hear something awesome? The Recovery Elevator podcast is in the 98th percentile of all podcasts on the interwebs, and there are over 2 million podcasts. Now, the reason for this is the guest who comes on every Monday and puts it all out there. They do this for one reason, which is why we've had success. They do this to help you to be of service and to give guidance to others who may be struggling. As Patrick Foley says in our courses, they do this to help walk each other home. Now, this podcast is free. The guests are not paid. They do this to help you, the listener, and it keeps them accountable as well. It's a really neat balance. So I want to say a huge thank you to the previous 372 guests, and thank you to Chris for sharing your story today. And who knows where this journey may lead you? Just ask Chris Oyen, who began listening to this podcast alone, in his camper, divorce papers looming, when everything was falling apart. Now he's one of the hosts for this podcast. Who knows, you may hear your own voice on this show in the future. Keep listening, and let's see what happens. So listeners, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what guest has resonated with you the most or dropped the biggest value bomb for you on this podcast. I want you to please email me at info at recoveryelevator.com with your favorite value bomb that you've heard on this podcast. Then on May 9th or episode 377, I want to share this with the listeners. Now, there's a couple reasons why I want to do this. I want to hear from the listener, and that's always fun. The other is I want to recognize or give a shout out to the guest who courageously shared their story on this podcast. Now here's an example of what this can look like. I heard a great line from the interviewee Stephanie on episode 371 that landed with me. She talked about a show bottle. She mentioned that on the countertop, she had a wine bottle that she rarely touched. And under the sink, she had a box of wine. The bottle on the countertop was the show bottle for her friends and guests that announced, hello world, I'm a normal drinker. But below was the larger container of box wine. Now here's why this had an impact for me. I never had a show bottle on the countertop, like Stephanie mentioned, but much of my life when I was drinking was the show bottle. I was living two lives. I'd keep it buttoned up when I went out with friends, but when I'd get home, that's when I'd started drinking the way I wanted to, the way I needed to, alone. So this show bottle value bomb that Stephanie dropped was a metaphor for how I was living life prior to quitting drinking. It also made me think of how exhausting it was to maintain the mirage of a show bottle. I'm thankful that is over. Stephanie had another line in episode 370 that hit with me. She referenced her drinking problem as a ticking time bomb. 
Now we think all drinking problems or addictions are ticking time bombs. And one of the main purposes of this podcast, what Chris, myself, Odette, and the RA team are trying to accomplish, is to give you the power, the tools, and inspiration to dismantle this bomb before it goes off. Another way this is phrased in the 12-step realm is you can stop digging whenever you want. Again, send me an email to info at recoveryelevator.com with your favorite value bomb on the podcast. Let me know who the interviewee was, what they said, and do your best to include the episode number. Listeners, we've got another AF bar called the Volstead opening up in Philly. We are keeping a list of AF bars across the country, and we'll get this list to you in the near future. How fun would an AF bar summer road trip be? Count me in. Link to the Volstead in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And if you're in the Philly area, let's support our AF brothers and sisters and go check out the Volstead. Okay, let's get started. There are two counselors that I see on a regular basis. Sometimes once a month, sometimes once every three to four months. It it really just depends. The last time I met with my counselor, I asked him two questions. And keep in mind, he's a normal drinker and his practice isn't geared towards recovery. However, in the past, I remember him mentioning that alcohol plays a major role in many of his clients. Okay, so here were the two questions. Number one, what is the one thing you see people struggling with? The second question was, what is the one thing that helps? Okay, so these are bigger contemplative questions. However, he didn't need much time to answer either of them. For the first question, he said, control. For some reason, I have the idea in my head that only alcoholics struggle with control, but that's not the case at all. Everybody does. However, it's the alcoholic that is forced to reconcile the imbalances of control in their lives, which is a good thing. The pain points for an alcoholic are much more intense, or it's a matter of life and death. Therefore, we have no choice but to address it. And again, this is a good thing. There's a well-known prayer for this that you probably already know. It goes something like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. Again, we all struggle with control. We want manicured lawns, dust-free countertops, and vacuum lines in the carpet. However, that's not the signature of nature, and the deeper us wants to relinquish all control. It's the Bruno voice that gets in the way. We see this at the individual level and at the macro level as well. Sometimes countries struggle with this and invade other countries. The outcome always results in more suffering. For the second question, I asked him, what was the one thing that helps people? Again, keep in mind, his practice isn't geared towards addiction. And here was his answer. He said, the one thing that I find in my practice that helps people the most is connection. Hmm, interesting. So we've heard that quote, the opposite of addiction is connection. So if the opposite of addiction is connection, could it be too much of a stretch to say the opposite of control is connection? Is it plausible to say the opposite of mental health issues is connection? The opposite of inflammation is connection? The opposite of cancer is connection? The opposite of an upset tummy is connection? The opposite of you losing your shit when your team loses the big game is connection? Sure, some of this may seem comical, But is it really? Listeners, we've never been sicker as a society across the globe, and there's plenty of data to back this up. A better way to say this is we've never been more disconnected. In the USA, more specifically for white males, we are now seeing a decrease in life expectancy for the first time, and this has been the case for over five years now. 
In the past 50 years, the average distance we find ourselves from another human being has increased over 125%. We are a social species finding ourselves more and more isolated. Cue alcohol for connection. No fucking kidding. This isn't a big mystery. So here is our homework. Instead of placing your mental energies in trying to control things, invite a friend out to coffee. Go on a walk with your dog in nature. Learn to play the ukulele with us. Go on a meditation retreat. Join Cafe RE. Call your mom. Volunteer to soup kitchen. Write a letter to someone in jail. All of our lives are depending on this, and we all have to do our part, which I know we can, and I know we will. Okay, before we hear from Odette and Chris, let's hear from a better way to get help. Let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters. And as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a great introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Chris to the show today. Chris, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Odette? I'm really good. I'm really glad that we are chatting and let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink? Oh, I, you know, it's funny. I was looking at this and realized I, I should have taken a look at a, at a calendar. I want to say it's roughly August 28th, 2016. You have to look at a calendar because it's been that long. It feels yeah. like you're so far away from the last time you had a drink. How does it feel? It's interesting. I was talking to a classmate of mine and who is also in recovery and we have similar timelines and that's just kind of how things go, right? Like it's been so long. It's just my lifestyle and you don't, well, I don't count days. I, I, every once in a while check in and like, wow, it's, it's been a while. Yeah. I, I feel like crossing that line into, it's just part of who I am instead of it's something that I'm doing in the meantime, in the meantime, who knows for what, but it, it becomes who you are. And, and it's really, for me, at least inspiring to hear people be on that side, because sometimes I do personally still struggle with 
with that. So I'm just, I'm really happy for us to hear more about you. But before we get into your story with alcohol, can you let us know a little bit about yourself, a little bit about where you're from, how old you are? Do you have a family? What do you do for fun? What do you do for a living? Just a little bit about you, Chris. Sure. Absolutely. So um, I am a Baltimore girl. Uh, I was born and raised here. Um, I've only moved like six miles in a few different directions. So I've stayed here pretty much my whole life. I'm a mom to two adult girls and they are both not fully on their own. One is graduating from college this year and the other has started um, vocational school, which is really exciting to, to see them move on into the adult world. I am a massage therapist. I teach movement, so yoga, Pilates, somatics. And these last few years during the pandemic, I have a private practice. And so things look a lot different now. They're constantly evolving and it can be scary, but also really exciting to see how things are changing and how people are coming through this pandemic. For fun, I have a whole list, especially with having older kids. It gives me a lot more free time. So recently I took up uh, social dancing, ballroom, salsa, rumba, things like that. I competitive Irish dance. I love to paddleboard and hike. I uh, I want to hang out with you, Chris. I want to go to a uh, competitive dance competition and cheer you on. That sounds so much fun. And, you know, my kids are still young, so it's nice to know that I'll get a little bit more time in when they get older. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, that's great, Chris. And well, tell us now a little bit about your story. You know, what was your relationship with alcohol before? You know, where did it start? How did it evolve? And what got you to start quitting and got you here with us today? Sure. So as a kid growing up, alcohol was not something my family kept in the house. And there was a lot of addiction on both sides of my family. So it was something shame-based. We didn't talk about it. I sort of just knew that alcoholism in particular was a family issue, something that to be scared of. Alcohol itself was something to be scared of. And I don't know, for that reason, I tended to stay away from it. And as I got into high school, when friends were beginning to drink and party, I was the person who was running my friends. I was the designated driver. I would pick friends up and, and it was kind of like a known thing. And it was a conscious choice that I made because there was this fear that if I started, I wouldn't be able to stop. And you know, what's that self-fulfilling prophecy thing, right? Um, that's kind of what ended up happening when, um, you know, had a few life events and then ended up with uh, my now uh, soon-to-be ex-husband. When I settled into that relationship, I began drinking and it was, I had a safe partner and someone who would keep an eye out on me and it rapidly progressed to a problem. And from the start, I just kind of saw that along the way, I had a few traumatic events, one being a really life altering one, which was an ectopic pregnancy, which ruptured. And it was one of those, uh, seeing the, the white light moments. And it's an interesting thing. They say that a lot of times you come out of those sort of events in two ways. You either spiral and you go down a darker hole or you come out renewed and with a new sense of purpose. And for me, I definitely went down that dark road. Pregnancy loss is not something that we talk about in our society. And 
I remember um, being just a few days after it had happened in the mall with my two girls and my sister. And one of my parents' uh, friends came up to me and said, oh gosh, congratulations. I heard it must be so exciting. And I just looked at her and smiled because, you know, that was part of my job was to help people feel comfortable and, and not worry about me. And so I didn't let her know that I had actually just gotten out of the hospital from, from losing this child. So it was pretty traumatic. Um, already being in the wellness field and my job being that to help people feel better, my uh, coping mechanism turned out to be using alcohol to shut down that pain. And my husband often worked contracts in another state. And so he was gone a lot of the time with two young kids. That was my outlet. That was the way to turn things off. And it just got, it got to a point eventually where I had had enough. I was in pain. Everything hurt. I was beginning to lose clients and students because I was talking the talk, but not walking it. And people could see it. You know, I just decided that I had had enough and it was time to stop. And that was, yeah, almost six years ago. Wow, Chris. And I I, I really appreciate you sharing uh, what happened with the pregnancy. I, I'm sorry. I That had to be so hard. Specifically, what really stood out to me is that you shared, you know, that your role, like your social role was to make other people feel comfortable and to not be a concern to anybody. Just real quick, do you think that that role was a role that you kind of adopted in your household when you were growing up? For me, it was like the caretaker. And I felt yeah. like my role was something that was put on me, but also I picked up and quote unquote, agreed to it because it gave me some self-worth that obviously wasn't the type of self-worth that I should have built my confidence on. But was it a little bit similar for you? Absolutely. My my grandmother passed away when I was, I would have told you eight, but it turns out I was six when this happened. She was drinking and driving and was in a coma. It's funny how memory serves us. My memory says she was in a coma for a month and she actually passed away on or around Thanksgiving. And, you know, my mom was still very young at the time. And my sister was four years older than me. And it was almost like I had to step into the role of, of parenting a little bit, of, of placating, of being the comedian and making light of things. And I was pretty good at it. I could read people very quickly and, and just kind of, um, I don't know, put people at ease and use humor a lot to, to make people feel comfortable. So I learned that and it's, <laughs> it served me well in my life. Yeah. It's definitely something that's carried over into adulthood. Yeah. I feel like those roles that we fall into when we're younger for many of us, especially in recovery, we learn to, you know, are the things that happen after you quit drinking where you can see the dynamics and then you try to kind of find this this new role that maybe fits better with new boundaries and, and protecting yourself and, and your energy. So uh, I just always get curious about that. So thank you. And then I also, you know, you said that you were starting to physically feel the effects of you talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Do you mean yeah. per particularly like in regards of how much you're drinking? Did you have any chronic pain? Like how were you physically experiencing these uh, consequences in you? 
So there are lots of signs. Um, I was scrolling through social media is such a funny thing. And I was scrolling through old pictures of myself and a friend was like, wow, like 10 years ago, that doesn't look like you. I said, well, sure, because everything was, was puffy, you know, <laughs> I was not a healthy person. So, you know, I think about these things and when I got to the place where I decided I had had enough, I was having a lot of pain and I was chasing that pain. That's what a lot of people do. So it's, um, it would radiate from under my right rib cage into my right side of my back and, and armed with just enough knowledge to be dangerous. I, I went online and kind of checked things out. I had neuropathy down the almost entire left side of my body. And there's some really scary and frightening things that you can read about that sound alcohol related with nerve damage. I eventually came to, uh, to, I think, have a pretty good idea of, of what was going on in my body and started researching tools. And one of the tools that I found is actually something that I went through the training to learn how to do to help other people with. Um, it's a great type of work that's both movement and hands-on body work based. And when I found this work, there was one other practitioner in my state. And within two sessions, he had basically healed most of that left-sided neuropathy. And, you know, on a pain scale of one to 10, I would say I was at an eight to 10 every day and had this numbness going through my whole left side with a very physically demanding job. I would get up in the morning and teach my yoga classes on the weekends and not be able to do downward dog because, you know, I was hung over and hanging my head upside down was not the thing I wanted to do. So, <laughs> so yeah, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of physical discomfort and, and signs that from my appearance, but also my physical being that I, I was not headed in a good direction. Before you decided to, to quit and get on this side of the journey, what you said about the self-fulfilling prophecy in your family and, you know, you then latching onto alcohol the way that the narrative had been in your household as well. What, what was your thought process around you then falling for lack of a better word into the self-fulfilling prophecy? Like, was that hard to come to terms with? Was it shame inducing? How was kind of like that realization when you were in it? That's an interesting question. Well, so when I think about it, I, I guess I wasn't terribly cognizant of that. At some points, you know, I look at my relationship with my partner and, and realize there was a lot of codependent, um, not healthy interactions between us. And so one of the things was I, I didn't get my own drink when we went to events and parties. And I also did not buy the alcohol. So for all intents and purposes, it looked from the exterior, like, like I was fine. <laughs> so I, I realized now there was, were things that we kind of both established to normalize mm -hmm. what we both knew was too much. So he was also someone that was on this spectrum of struggling with alcoholism. I think, I think we all have poor coping mechanisms. Yeah. And I see things, you know, as we got closer to separating, I see patterns that he has that are not healthy. He has a, a lot better boundaries regarding alcohol, but definitely was not using it in a healthy way. 
That's for sure. It's so hard with um, our partners or with, with our close family, you know, to, for me, yeah. it's been really tough to just accept and, and see things a little bit more objectively of like, I'm either holding a, a role of being an accountability type of partner or teammate or family member, yeah. or I'm, I could fall into the enabling role because <laughs> I also have my own issues. And it's, for me, it's been really humbling to see that I've, I have to accept that I've oscillated from those roles, you know, that, that according yeah. to my own disease and my own, whatever I needed to numb out, I, I sometimes enabled, I sometimes was like, you know, we need to not drink as much, you know, it's just, for me, it's been really hard because I feel like there's this great area, but also detaching from that shame of when I needed really badly to numb out the pain. And when you kind of team up with someone, oh, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys ever have conversations around your drinking or with um, your daughters? Was it something that ever came up before you decided to quit? Yeah. So I, for a very long time was, was concerned about how I was drinking. And, you know, I think about when I was looking through the questions for this interview, I was thinking about my stories and, and there was one instance in particular that just was, was so clear what a problem it was. And he cleaned things up for me. And when I look, when I, when I look at that, it just kind of boggles my mind that he continued and continues to this day to say it was never an issue. Like he doesn't think my drinking was a problem, even though there were things like, let's buy you carbonated drinks that you don't like the taste of. So it'll slow you down or let's buy boxes of wine. So I don't see how many bottles you've had, you know. I would tell him that I needed help and I needed to stop. And those were his solutions. It was how, how can we slow you down so that you don't have to stop? And that in and of itself is not the epitome of healthy. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. You know, was there any story or anything in particular that falls under kind of that rock bottom moment where you just, you know, saw things clearly, at least for an instance, and realize, you know, like, this is a problem for sure. I can't say that I had a true rock bottom. There were lots of events along the way. And, and the one that had me kind of thinking was, was one where I, I met a new friend who had similar trauma. And we were just like trauma bonding. We were sharing our stories of, of how awful things had gotten. And yeah, <laughs> woke up the next morning in a blur and that I stayed in that space for years and recognized that this, this waking up that morning was frightening. And yet I just was on a roller coaster that I couldn't get off and hung out there for way too long. So when I got to a place of having so much pain and then began listening to different podcasts and, and learning about people's journey, struggle, and stories, uh, fear is really what made me decide it's time to stop, you know, getting older and, and hearing that I'm not invincible and some of this, this too could happen to you. So there never was a single rock bottom moment, but there was just that it's time. It's enough. Yeah. I mean, making it uh, to where you can sense your humanity in the problem. I feel like we, we are 
mostly the opposite of what you're sharing. I, or maybe it's me. We think it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to be me. You know, I remember when my therapist told me, you know, you are most likely to either latch on to an alcoholic or become one. That's kind of the pattern of your family. I'm just giving you a heads up. And I remember saying and declaring, you know, nope, it's not going to be me instead of possibly exploring, you know, if, if it will end up being me, what can I do to prevent that, you know, and, and I just uh, share that part of your story of this um, fulfilling prophecy. And, and I, I'm just really grateful that you were able to kind of latch onto this fear a little bit, which can be healthy fear uh, that can project you, project you into, into the right direction, especially being in the field, you know, did you have some sort of cognitive dissonance between what you were doing in terms of work and the yeah. role that alcohol had in that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, I gained weight and I would blame it on my pregnancies or, you know, my, my thyroid must not be working right. Or, you know, so I, I eventually like got my act together and started losing weight and I just couldn't get back down to that pre-baby weight. And it's funny because once I did get sober, it all just started coming off. And, and as I got my life together, I remember one of my teachers saying, one of my mentors saying that our, our students, our clients know when we don't have it together, they want um, their teacher to be a few steps ahead of them in the process. And I had backslid so tremendously. There absolutely was a cognitive cognitive dissonance and shame, like a lot of shame around it. And it, it's interesting because to this day, I still have clients that were with me um, that's, that might have disappeared for a while and came back as I got my act together. But one of the most interesting experiences was I had three clients about three months into sobriety that actually said to me, what's different? <laughs> and that they could recognize it, that they could see that I was getting more clear. That was amazing. Oh, I bet that felt so good and so validating. What what great source of like just fuel to to keep going in, like I said, the right type of confidence booster. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris, how was the beginning of your sober journey? You know, it's been a long time now, but was it hard? Did you stumble at the beginning? Was it a commitment and you just have stayed on that track? Walk us through kind of that chapter one for you. It was so hard. I I did it. I really did it on my own. I listened to podcasts and, uh, you know, I, I worry, oh, somebody's going to see my activity and they're going to know that I'm listening to sober podcasts. But I found Paul's and Omar Pinto's at about the same time. And I just listened to them when I wasn't working. I was listening to podcasts and I didn't want to go into the rooms. I have an aversion to that mm, culture and I just wasn't drawn to it. So I just kept listening to people's stories. And I, I think I tore through all the episodes that Paul had up within a few months and, and kept looking for more information. And the whole first year, well, the, the first few weeks, I did not share with anyone, including my partner. After about a month, I said something to him about it. And he was like, yeah, I noticed that you haven't been, but eventually you will, right? And, and there was this disbelief. Ultimately, there are very few people that I have shared my sobriety with, and it's, it's almost like my superpower. My youngest did karate, and that was, karate is my secret. And I think of it that way. Like, nobody needs to know that. It's who I am, but it's not 
it's not really for other people to judge. Well, I don't want them to judge. And it was easier for me to just not explain myself. So as time went on at about a year, actually my, my one year um, sober, I went to Paul's first retreat and quickly realized that I was a dry drunk. <laughs> I was wiggling it. I was hanging on for, for dear life. And, and maybe I do need to share it with other people. And so selectively, I began to um, create my network. I met a really great group of gals. And before the pandemic, we were meeting up once a year to, to have a reunion. And, and I've joined a few online sober groups and, and met up with those people in person. And that's been a wonderful resource. And all of that really came from, from Paul's work originally. So it's, it's a stream in my life. It's steady and constant and was slow growing my recovery and my sobriety tools, but not overwhelmingly so. And, you know, we usually get this question a lot on on all social media platforms, uh, especially from people in early sobriety. And since you already have some years under your belt, you know, like how quickly or how much improvement have you noticed in terms of you're not drinking, but the thoughts surrounding the drinking? How has that process been for you over time? How often do you think about drinking these days? How was that progression, almost like that backwards, regret, that regression um, from that headspace that was thinking about drinking a lot? It's an interesting thing. I work with a sobriety coach who has spent a lot of time in, time in the rooms, who uses smart recovery and just has a lot of different uh, re resources that she pulls from. And going through a separation and changing my lifestyle drastically in the last few weeks, she's been very concerned with like, are you going to drink? Are you worried about, you know, are you thinking about it? And it's such a far removed thing in my life that, no, I'm not concerned at all. And that's kind of what I did. Like, well, how do I, how do I backtrack? How do I think about, how did I end up here that I'm not worried at all about my recovery and staying sober? And I guess the answer to that is it's, it's slow. It's, it's just making the next right choice and holding on to those choices and feeling good. So as I began to feel better physically and my body was clearing up of inflammation and the brain fog and all of that. It just felt so good. I didn't want to lose it. And so I changed a lot of lifestyle pieces, diet and exercise. And as I got better, my husband got worse and he dug in and became very obstinate and difficult and started almost kind of sabotaging me. And that took a lot of time to sift through which parts did I own. It took a lot of self-reflection and what we call the inner work. And, you know, that process alone has been a four-year process, which might have happened a little bit faster, the separation, if the pandemic hadn't happened when it did. So I look at those kind of milestones and I don't think I could get where I am any faster than I have. I think that the slowness of the process had to happen this way because when we change too much too fast, it's kind of elusive. It's hard to hang on to the progress and the gains. Did you ever consider going back to drinking, and this may sound like a crazy question, but did you ever consider going back to drinking as you saw 
that his drinking was getting worse. Like, I feel like change is so hard for our brains and the idea of drifting yeah. apart or changing dynamics that you and him had previously. Was that hard? Were you ever like considering like, maybe I can just moderate and then we can still have some sort of connection? I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. I do recognize that, you know, there have been comments like, well, you the old Chris, or, you know, <laughs> I don't like the new Chris or because I can be, I can be intense. I can be very serious. And I definitely was more carefree when I was drinking. I, I do recognize that there's some resentment that, that he didn't have that partner any longer, but I can honestly say, no, there were times where I wanted very badly to drink, especially in those first few years, but I also believe that I used other coping mechanisms <laughs> and maybe I was fooling myself about, um, you know, the choices I was making. And I recognize those patterns now, maybe shopping more than I should, or definitely working more than I should that that's for sure. A checkout that I used often. Cause then I didn't have to be home and deal with what wasn't working. Yes. Almost that avoidance uh, coping mechanism, which I, I, you know, lately, from having been struggling a little bit myself, I'm like, honestly, there's all these tools. Some are better than others, but just whatever you got to do to get through the day sometimes, whether it's distraction, avoidance, like just being a little more gentle in terms of how intensely we categorize the tools as well. So um, what are some tools that feel good uh, and that you've kept on your tool belt, you know, tools that you know that are obviously on the healthy side and that are quote unquote, good tools. What are some that still stand out to you now? So one of the things I miss the most um, since the pandemic is my yoga studio that I attend closed. And I'm like, well, what, what was it about that? It was the community one. It was the meditative, just kind of movement-based zone out and just kind of put your body in different places. So and I, I did hot yoga. That was my favorite. So I gave uh, myself a treat, a, a big splurge. I got a sauna blanket and used that for the end of my personal yoga practices. So yoga is definitely something that I use. Hannah Somatics, it's a really great tool for dropping in and, and getting quiet and changing that patterning, the nervous system and the and the, the patterns that don't work. And then using my, my sauna blanket for the meditation part is, is a great tool. I've used a few different types of coaching, both business related and recovery coaching and groups and one-on-one. And I find those to be really great tools. I have a therapist. I get acupuncture regularly. Yeah, I trade with another massage therapist. So there's a lot of body-based things that I do. I guess that's how I'm wired. I started recently pursuing a somatic experiencing training just because I wanted to learn more about it. And, and I'm finding that to be a really neat tool as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of options and alternatives out there. Yeah. You know, I, I really, I'm curious and I like hearing from people that really are working towards bridging the gap between, you know, the mind and like really silking into the body and really feeling what's happening and, and what it's trying to tell us, you know, how does your body feel nowadays, you know, compared to what you were sharing from when you started quitting? Do you notice that you 
hold any energy or tenseness in some places? Do you feel like you're mostly relaxed now? How do you translate your healing into how your body feels? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, we're all growing and learning, right? So I'm kind of laughing because uh, a few, I don't know, maybe six or seven months ago, I kept thinking to myself, you've got to do some work on your jaw. You've got to let this tension go. And gosh, darn it, if I did nothing and cracked a tooth, <laughs> I have this massive, like if you eat with me, you, I can't tell you how many people are like, what is that noise? Oh, it's my jaw. <laughs> so I store a lot of my tension yeah, in my jaw and the, the TMJD issues I have are just incredible and was grinding so bad that, yeah, I, I had to get my tooth capped. <laughs> so I, like, you know, intuition reminds me. And then when I don't listen, the universe is like, Hey, yes, <laughs> take that. Tell me, um, Chris, like your how old did you say your daughters were? My girls are 18 and 21. Okay. And ha has there been any conversation with them as they transition into adulthood? Like, do you have any fears about them drinking? Do are, do they have any questions to you about why you don't drink? How has that all happened? You know, a few times I mentioned to my older daughter about, you know, like, you know, I don't drink. And it's funny that that's just who I am to them. They they know I don't. If I do have a drink, it's kind of like, hey, what are you doing? So I will put things in a wine glass and, and you know, like they want to know what I'm, oh, it's not alcoholic. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of interesting. They just know who that's who I am and they don't seem to remember the before with my older daughter, when she went off to college, I, you know, we had lots of conversations because they start exploring and kind of pushing the boundaries. And she had a really good group of friends with some very overprotective parents. And so there would be things that would come up and, and I, I wanted her to experience some of those things before she went off to college. So we would have conversations about, you know, choices and family tendencies and how to navigate those. I was less concerned with her just because of the, who the person she is than with my younger daughter who has struggled with mental health issues and substances and, and, you know, already shows even young showed some signs of things that I was concerned with as she moves into adulthood. So we have a, a pretty good relationship and an open line of communication and you know, especially with things like mar marijuana being legalized, you know, we have a lot of conversations about what I think is appropriate, what I'm concerned with, and what I'd like to see for them. I love that. I mean, the fact that you guys communicate and I don't know, the, the trust, uh, it's hard for me. I was sometimes terrified to talk to my parents and I, my kids are younger than yours, but I just, yeah. I really hope that they can, they can just ask questions, even if they think, I'm not going to be a fan of the, of the question or disagree with them. I know it's a whole other thing, especially I know for me, you know, that that idea of from what you shared where, you know, I come from a family where there was a lot of narratives around like alcohol is something to be quote unquote scared about or be mindful and, you know, don't don't fall into what other family members have fallen into. And at the same time, I don't want to have them like hyper vigilant all the time, you know, so it's just, it's, it's tough, I think, or it's going to be tough for me <laughs> as they grow up. Yeah. And, and you'll find, you'll find that way. You'll figure it out. I mean, they, they're going to see your journey as well, whether 
they see all of it or not, but they're, they're going to understand. Yeah. And Chris, because you, I know you have so many clients and I know you said your, your business has shifted since COVID, but because of you actually walking the walk now, like how has that unfolded? Have you connected with other, maybe ironically a sober client and it just came up in conversation? Like how has sobriety showed up in your practice? It's funny because I can see it in other people. I recognize sober people. I can, I can recognize newly sober people and, and I still share selectively, but it is a pretty cool thing. It's kind of like you get to give them a little hand sign, like, Hey, me too. Um, and, and you get to have these conversations that you wouldn't have with people who haven't experienced that lifestyle change. So it's like a secret society. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I like that. It's like this synchronicity and and you kind of just are able to have this radar and and this this sometimes unspoken bond. So I ju- I was just curious, and it's cool that you can you can catch it. All right, Chris. Well, we have reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in thirty seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. If you could talk to Chris on day one or young Chris, what would you say? Oh. I got chills when you asked that. <laughs> You've got this. You can do it. You are stronger than you know. What is a light bulb moment or an aha moment that you've had during sobriety? The recognition of the part in my relationships, how they've how they've played a part and how much blame I placed on other people for my choices like how, how that transition, taking that responsibility gives me power back and also more control. It it mitigates the fear. That's powerful. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, (laughs) these days it's been salted caramel. What are you excited about right now? I, (laughs) If you see my Facebook posts, you know that I am not doing well with Spanish. <laughs> and if I pass <laughs> Spanish 201 this semester, <laughs> I mean, I'm saying this to someone who clearly can speak multiple <laughs> languages, but my brain just doesn't work this way. But if I can pass Spanish this semester, I will be graduating. And I started that journey going back to school the same, like, the day after I got sober. So I'm really excited to walk the stage. I love that. And uh, I, you should feel very proud. I also learned English when I was very little. And I think the brain just has a different type of setup. I don't think I tried to learn French and it's just, it's so different when you're older and when you have to do it in a way where it's like a grammar, I, I, I just, I hear you and I just <laughs> learned when I was a baby and I think that was a big help. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Trust your intuition. Yeah. You know, we, we, they call it the gut instinct and it's there for a reason. Our gut is our second brain. And we know if we listen, if we get quiet and pay attention, we know what we've been trying to numb and how to get there. Um, we all do. We just have to to do it. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. 
you might need to say adios to booze if your partner is figuring out ways to make it look like you don't drink as much as you do. Someone's getting you an alibi. <laughs> yeah. Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate you and I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm grateful for the work you do and the value you've brought to us. Listeners, Chris has um, taught us all at Bozeman at one of the retreats. I was one of the participants in one of her workshops. And I just, I'm grateful that we have you in our community and on our team. So thank you. Thanks, Odette. I'm grateful for you. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Very well, Team RE. That's a wrap. And before I say adios, I want to share with you something that I heard and that really resonated with me. And I just hope that it resonates with some of you. It was a quote and the quote says, the crack does not mean you are broken. It means you have room to grow. What would happen if you looked at the parts of yourself that you considered to be broken and just rethought about your perception of them. What would happen if instead of judging yourself for them or shaming yourself for them, you would consider them opportunities to learn, to see things differently, to live out a different life? Perception is reality. So make sure that you are checking yourself every time that you you know, are not acting very kindly towards yourself. We're not perfect. We just ask that every week that you return here, you come with a willingness to grow and with a willingness to heal. And that may look very different from one day to the next, but don't forget to root for yourself and don't forget to remind yourself that you are already whole and that you're right where you're supposed to be. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, let's continue to be trailblazers in recovery together. Love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you.
your thinking.